From Gimlet Media, this is Without Fail. I'm your host, Alex Bloomberg. And on the show, I talk to athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. The other day, I was walking home from Gimlet with my wife, Nazanin. This is our routine at the end of most workdays. Walk the 15 minutes up noisy Flatbush Avenue to our apartment. We talk about the day. She and I worked together. She joined the company pretty soon after we'd formed it. And she started this division called Gimlet Creative, which makes all of our ads and branded content. It's on the business side. But recently, she has switched roles. She's become the head of new show development, meaning she's no longer making commercials. She's making Gimlet shows. And she's trying to make shows that can grow into franchises with large audiences. It's just much more complicated. Like, me and, like, everyone else who works on that team are supposed to, like, make, like, make hits. Like, that's what, that's what our job is. And I don't know how to do that. I've never done that. I've never created from nothing a, a hit. It's also, like, you don't... It's hard to know... What even makes a hit? Like, there's no, I don't, you know what I mean? I know, I have no idea. Are there rules? <laughs> Wait, there you don't know? <laughs> tell me what they are. I can't tell you how many times I ask the question, are there rules, knowing full well that the answer is no, there are not rules. And it was a shockingly long time before I realized what business Gimlet was actually in. The business of making hits. And making a hit is hard. There don't seem to be any rules. But there are a few people who manage to do it over and over. People like movie mogul Nina Jacobson. Nina Jacobson is a force in Hollywood. She was a studio executive who's worked at some of the largest movie studios, DreamWorks, Universal Pictures, Disney, and she's behind some of the biggest movies of the last 20 years. The Hunger Games, The Sixth Sense, Remember the Titans, Pirates of the Caribbean. Her latest hit, Crazy Rich Asians, is the biggest romantic comedy of the last 20 years. I was so excited to talk to Nina because I thought she might have advice for me and for Nazanin on this, our most pressing of questions. How do we at Gimlet make what is essentially our core product, hits? And over the course of our conversation, we did get to that. But we started not with Nina's success, but with her failures. Specifically, a concept that she brought up called the failure resume. Oh, and I should warn you, there's some strong language in this episode. All right, here's my conversation with Nina Jacobson. Have you heard about the failure resume? I have not. My daughter turned me on to this. There's a professor at Stanford who has written about how uh, it is valuable for people to do their failure resume um, because uh, your failures sort of define who you are and what you've learned and um, how you've been impacted in many respects more than your successes do, and that owning those failures and embracing them is sort of a critical component to successful people. Do you buy that? Totally, absolutely. Um, for the most part, I have found that the greatest heights have always come for me after the like, you're down in the dirt, 
you dust yourself off, you're full of self-doubt, and that the greatest heights always come after the lowest peaks every time. Nina told me that she started adding to her failure resume very early on, starting with her first job in Hollywood, right out of college, at Disney Sunday Movies. My job was to read the script, do a synopsis, and give my comments on whether the script or the writer was worthy of further pursuit. Mm -hmm. And um, I liked that job, and it was great just to sit and live in stories all day. Uh, which makes me happy. Six months into that job, the writer strike of 1988 happened, and I got fired. Um, my mom cried and wondered, was I sure I didn't want to be a doctor like I said I wanted to be when I was in high school? Your mom cried when you told her that you got fired from your from your script reading job? Yeah. Yeah? Because you know, nobody wants their kid to be sad. And um, it was the first uh, installment on my failure resume. Um, and because there was a writer's strike, hardly anybody was hiring. Um, but the one person who was hiring was Joel Silver. Keep in mind, like, say you've got the fiery, left-leaning, feminist, brown graduate. The one person who's hiring is Joel Silver. And who's Joel Silver? Joel Silver was, at the time at least, a very powerful producer of big action franchises like Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, and you and, um, and you and he did not share necessarily politics in common. Well, certainly gender politics. I can give you a pretty good example, which is that the night of my interview with him, um, he was personally auditioning strippers for Roadhouse, the movie, with Patrick Swayze, and I was sandwiched in between a bunch of strippers uh, with my glasses and my generally nerdy demeanor. Um, and actually a couple of young women who worked for him, who were sisters, they called me and they were like, why, why don't you come and sit in here? Uh, and so I was brought into a different room because all the strippers were looking at me like I should fire my casting agent. And you're there with your resume and your cover letter and like, you yeah. know, wow. What did you think when you walked into that room? I felt like I was in a movie. I often find myself feeling like I'm in a movie. I felt like I was in a movie. Does um, that help? Yes, it does. It helps. It helps to also just appreciate the humor of a situation, and it was hard to miss it in that situation. Um, but I met with Joel, and um, he asked me, what have you heard about me? And he had a very fiery reputation, and I told him, I've, I've heard you're not a mensch. And he thought that was incredibly funny and hired me on the spot. Um, and so I managed to land on my feet, and six months go by. And my friend says, I have some bad news. I just got out of a meeting with somebody who just came from an interview for your job. And so uh, I go to Joel and I say, are you going to fire me? He's like, no, why? What have you heard? I like, well, I heard that somebody just came from an interview for my job. And he's like, mm, yeah, well, so-and-so is coming in. He has to have his own people. It's just the way it is. Don't tell people that we fucked you. Because you know what? I, I We didn't fuck you. This isn't just, I've been fired from every job I've ever had, and I've done fine. It's just the way it is. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay. Don't tell people that we didn't fuck you because we didn't fuck you. Yeah, what? we didn't fuck you. Like, because it's just the way it is. That's life. But they did. 
Well, kind of. He wants to have his own people. And I was like, oh. So this time, by the way, I don't tell my mother right away because I don't want to deal with her being sad. (laughs) So So at this point, you've been in the business for— 18 months. 18 months and you've been fired twice. Fired twice. twice. (laughs) Whoa. But clearly, because we're having this conversation now, Nina did bounce back. She got another job in the business pretty quickly and managed to prove herself and rise through the ranks. She moved from one executive job at Universal Pictures to another one at Steven Spielberg's company, DreamWorks. She was so young when she became a studio executive that the New York Times dubbed her one of Hollywood's, quote, baby moguls. And she earned a reputation of being someone who was very good at making hits. She learned to trust her instincts. If she liked a movie, she figured so would other people. And that was a mantra that served her really well, almost all the time. The only time that it didn't work financially, this goes on the failure resume, um, but I was blinded by my love of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Uh-huh. Right, and had, that's that Wes Anderson movie starring Bill Murray as sort of a Jacques Cousteau character. Yeah. Wes Anderson is sort of famous for these quirky, stylish movies like Royal Tenenbaums and uh, Rushmore. Right, and um, as an executive at, Disney, mm-hmm. Touchstone, Hollywood Pictures. I'd been involved with the Royal Tannenbaums, which right. is one of my favorite movies of all time, one of my favorite movies to ever work on. I loved it. And when Wes Anderson gave me the script for The Life Aquatic, it was a bigger budget, and I was so in love, and I was so blinded by my love that I went to battle to get considerably more money to make this movie than what we had spent on his earlier movies. Right. Because I loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I figured, well, if I love it this much, and generally the making it for yourself thing is working for me, and um, I will always remember at our first, like, big screening of the movie, afterwards people would come up and congratulate me on what a brave movie it was, at which point I knew that I was fucked because brave is code for stupid in Hollywood. Um, and I was like, oh, God. It was a brave movie. You weren't and trying to make fact, a brave movie. You no, were just trying to, you were trying to make a blockbuster. I was making a big mainstream. Like, I thought for sure that this movie was going to cross over and that I just thought it was so funny and so original. And I, I just, I, I was blinded by my love for it. And it was I think probably, like, the biggest money loser on my watch. Um, And yet, I love the movie. Ah, Um, I love that movie. I love the movie. Yeah, that is so interesting, though, because, like, it's such an imprecise job. Essentially, your job is to pick winners, to pick hits. And there isn't science. There isn't a formula for it. Like, there's no way to do it. And the only thing you have to go by is your gut. And the people who, who... do well are people who somehow can like trust their gut. And so if you're one of those people, which you were and are, and and I am too, I think. I think of myself as that way. And and so the the times when I've trusted my gut and my gut has been wrong, it's really it's freaks me out. No, it's painful. It's very painful when What was no, the pain? Well, I mean, first of all, you feel like you've let down the filmmaker. Right. If a film fails that you were the advocate for, then that person now is carrying something that didn't work financially. Now, fortunately, I think artistically, I love the movie and the number of filmmakers who tell me that they love that movie, 
Um, it it hurts because you feel like you've let the person down. It hurts because you feel like you've let your shareholders down. You don't want to lose people's money. Right. But there's something about just I still love the movie. So I mm-hmm. don't have to sit there and think, why did I do it? I know why I did it. And I know what my mistake was, too, was which it? is that we spent too much money. Our mistake was uh, not making the movie. Our mistake was deciding, no, it's going to become a whole different animal than Royal Tenenbaums, and therefore it can cost twice as much, right? It, it, it's about mapping your sort of your own taste and to sort of seeing where parts of your own taste overlap with, like, broader swaths of people and where parts of your taste are maybe uh, there's not as many people who, who agree with you. Right. And at the same time, I'll give you another example on my failure resume of where, so when I was at Disney, they had never turned a ride into a movie before. Okay. So wait, I, I want to I want to stop you there because this is something that I really wanted to talk to you about. Because I, I think where you're going with this is, is the Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. which was well, one I'm, of I'm about to get to hits. that one. Yeah. Yeah. So I was always so curious about how that came to be because that movie is based on a on a ride. And the idea of taking an amusement park ride and turning it into a movie, let alone a hit movie, seems so crazy to me. And I was just always wanted to know the backstory of how that happened. Wh- whose desire was that in Disney to take a ride and turn it into a we, movie? I had the desire. It was our desire. Where did that come from? Um, because in the world of source material, I guess, I would say the things that I respond to are things that there's a feeling that you have about a book you love a comic book you love, a uh, it 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 conjures a feeling. And I grew up in LA. I went to Disneyland a lot, and I can tell you, for instance, with Pirates, I can tell you what that ride, the smell of that ride, the feeling that you get before you go down that first hill, the anticipation and the feelings that you feel in the ride. And I felt like that was something we had as this asset. And we have the Disney brand. We have these assets. Why not give them a go? Can um, I just say you're blowing my mind right now? Because I, and this, it makes so much more sense now to hear you say that. I thought that was like some crazy person at Disney had this idea. We've got these rides. Let's turn them into a movie. And like nobody would ever do that. But somehow Nina Jacobson <laughs> made it happen. And what you're telling me, and now it makes sense. You're telling me, no, no, no. The, that's a great idea. And I oh. had it because, like, rides are emotion, and like, yeah. you can take that. And I'm, I'm not saying I was probably the only person who had it. I'm, I'm sure there were other people who would claim ownership over that idea. But I was all in, right? I was all God. in. I was like, these are emotion. I know how these rides feel, and if I know how it feels, I know how to make a movie about it. So you have this idea to take these rides and make them into movies. Yeah, let's give it a go. Let's develop some of them. And so you just had to figure out which ride then? Yeah, which rides. So we decided let's give Country Bear Jamboree a go. And what's Country Bear Jamboree? I've never been to Disneyland. Well, I think it might even not be there anymore. There are animatronic bears that perform and, and sing and play guitars and stuff. And how did you settle on that first? Well, I actually think maybe we knew that it was going to close at some point, and maybe we thought, like, you know, this is sort of our chance to do it. And the Uh idea of doing a musical and a country musical and of also kind of beta testing this idea, too, right? Right. Of, you know, it's a 30 million—it was like a $30 million movie. Which isn't Um, much by by Disney standards, right? right. It wasn't a lot. And, and like I said, we had some fantastic music. There's uh, Bonnie Raitt is on there. We had some really great music. I don't know. It just seemed like a fun thing to do. 
It was like, mm-hmm. it's not very scientific. It was like, that sounds fun. Let's try it. <laughs> right. And right. we had good script. We had amazing puppets. They were awesome. It's just the CG was the sensibility. And people were like, that looks like guys in bear suits. And we were like, yeah, but do you realize how sophisticated these bear suits are? Uh, do you see the artistry of these bear suits? And it didn't work. Did people watch it and say you were brave? Uh, people were just like, oh, it's cute. But uh-huh. it it was, it didn't, it didn't work. Right. So yeah. one could have concluded from that that this whole ride to movie thing is a bad idea. Right. That's what but, I would have that's what I would have I would have concluded. I was like, that bad idea, Bloomberg. Right. I was like, that's not why it didn't work. <laughs> and so meanwhile, we were developing Pirates of the Caribbean. And Pirates of the Caribbean is another ride in Disneyland. Yes, it's another yeah. ride Disneyland that I uh-huh. love. It's my favorite ride, Disneyland. Again, I really knew, like, the feelings of it and what is it about. And also, my son at the time was really into pirates. So, I knew, like, oh, pirate ships are cool. Pirates are cool. And meanwhile, by the way, pirates are one of those things that in Hollywood legend, there's, like, pirates don't work. Nobody had made a successful pirate movie in a long time. Got it. Plus, we had just fallen on our face with our first go at a ride. I'm shocked that you're doing this movie. I'm shocked. You've just had this idea that didn't work. They thought we were idiots. We really got a lot of grief about it. People thought we were really dumb for making Pirates of the Caribbean. People were just like, look at Country Bears. It didn't work there. It's not going to work here. Um, how did that, but, how did that come back to you? How did you know uh, that you what the people hear were saying? People, I mean, first of all, like even before the movie came out, we, we weren't on any lists of like movies that will be hit over the summer. Right, there was no you buzz. Always, no buzz, zero buzz. And you know when you have doubters, you feel it. People talk about it. People gossip about it. What are they doing with that crazy pirate movie? And um, so we developed it internally, uh-huh. and then brought Jerry Bruckheimer on. We then brought on fantastic writers. And we started to build out and, you know, the idea of Johnny Depp and all of that stuff. And, you know, Jerry was a very formidable, very formidable producer and not an easy person to say no to. And so you partner, even though my our goal is to get, make this movie together, you partner with somebody who you know is going to push to make a very ballsy version of it. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I will say, and I'll be the first to admit that when the Daily started to come in, uh, Johnny Depp in the Dailies was pretty out there. Mm-hmm. And I started to sweat a little and worry. That, like, are we going to be okay? Right. Because he's playing Captain Jack Sparrow in what but now very, is like a— Very drunken and, you know, kind of fey and— Stop! Not good! What are you doing? You burned all the food, the shake, the rum! Yes! The rum is gone! Why is the rum gone? But you have to imagine that's the performance that's on screen. So you have to imagine for the dailies, what you're sculpting from is some pretty uh. out there— stuff. Really big, crazy stuff. And I actually had to be, I was the one told to call him and ask, like, hey, what are you, what are you, what, what's up? What are you doing? You know? <laughs> and nobody else wanted to make that call. And he said, you got to trust me. You just got to trust me. Johnny Depp said that to you? Yeah. I was like, okay. Okay. The first time I saw the movie, 
I went to him and said, you were right. You were right. I'm really glad I trusted you. I'm glad I didn't chicken out. You know, like, it, it's that's scary. It's scary when you're doing something that really pushes the envelope. And it was scary. Yeah. And I and as an executive, you know, you your job is to watch the bottom line and hope that something's going to resonate with a lot of people. And you, your goal is to surround yourself with people who actually you believe know better than you do. Right. And, and you're maybe there as a, a voice, but if you don't think they're better than you are, then you've hired the wrong person. Right. So he should know better than I do. And when he said, you just have to trust me, I was like, you know, yeah, that's right. And I'm gonna. It was a good lesson of like, don't be a chicken shit. Don't be scared of things that are out there. Um, and uh, because— even, even if you're trying to make a family movie about an amusement park ride. Yeah, even if you're making a family movie about amusement park ride. When did it become clear that you had a hit? Well, what was funny is that the movie was done very close to the time it was released. So our mm -hmm. first preview was right down to the wire. And so the first time we showed it, we showed it down in Anaheim. Just to a regular audience. Yeah. A re you, pre yeah. you recruit an audience and they tell you what they think and they loved it. They wow. loved it. And I don't think anybody, I mean, I had a lot of confidence in the movie. Once I saw it, I loved it. I loved it. It was a joyful, fun, this is why you go to the movies transporting, original. So I had a lot of confidence in it. But I don't think that the upper brass really knew that it was going to work until our first preview, which was right very close to the release of the movie. And it was great, though, because we weren't on any lists or anything. And the sneak attack is so much better than the, oh, everybody thinks this movie's going to be a hit. And then people either are disappointed in it or there's not a big enough hit. The movie right. that nobody sees coming is one of the most fun things ever. Coming up, one of the most not fun things ever, and a big addition to Nina's failure resume. That's after these words from our sponsors. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with studio executive producer and hitmaker Nina Jacobson. When we left off, Nina was an executive at Disney. She'd presided over a string of hits, including Pirates of the Caribbean, Chronicles of Narnia, Sixth Sense, Remember the Titans, and things were going well outside of work. We're going to pick up the story right as her wife was expecting their third child. She was due to give birth at any moment. But the movie industry was changing at this time, and Disney was in the process of reducing its headcount. We were having to do one of those hard things where you have to squeeze your belt and reduce the number of people um, in your team and cut your budget. And um, the night before my wife went into labor with our third child, a journalist friend of mine said, I hear that you're on the list. I was like, what? My wife had gone into labor the next day. So... Um, by the time my boss called me back, uh, we were just getting to the hospital. And I said, well, I heard this thing, and I, I can, what, can you fill me in? And he's like, oh, 
it's not a good thing to talk about on the phone. Can you come in? I was like, oh, no, I really can't come in right now. And he's like, oh, well, uh, I was like, okay, uh, can I, let me make it a little easier for you. Am I being fired? Yes. <laughs> Is so-and-so getting my job? Yes. Um, I was like, okay, got to go. Bye. Oh. Did you ever regret making it easier for him? I mean, not really just because it was so uncomfortable. I wanted to just get off the phone. It was actually a really crazy time. My my father was in the ICU at the hospital where my wife was giving birth. And so I was literally running back and forth during, as you know, the early stages of labor where there's a mm. lot of waiting around. And I was going back and forth between my dad and my wife during this little window of time. And I really did just want to like, let's just pull the Band-Aid off. I just don't, I don't want to think about this. And I, not knowing, will be hovering over me all day. I have a place that I want to be fully present and my life is happening right here. And I have yeah. to just compartmentalize and put the part of my life that is my job in a box and just put it aside for later. Um, of course, I also really resented, and my wife really resented, that that box was anywhere near this joyous moment. Right. But it was also that uh, after I was fired, I had this realization of, like, I could either really lean into the injustice of it, um, because I was told, it is, you are not, this is not a performance issue. And your movies had been doing well. Yeah. I mean, we'd had some, you know, there had been Life Aquatic, but that wasn't it, you know. Um, right. In fact, at one point, Bill Murray called me and said, did you get fired because Life Aquatic? Because I've been worrying about that. Like, I don't want to <laughs> feel bad about that. I was like, I was like, but I literally called me, I was at home. And I was like, uh, no, it's not your fault. But thanks for calling. Every story you hear about Bill Murray. I know. I, it was very sweet, but it was somebody else wanted my job, and whoever that person was had done a better job of lobbying and making the case for having my job than I had of protecting my job. So when you're fired in Hollywood, you're given a cover story, and you usually get right. to choose your cover story. And it's mm -hmm. one of two things both of which are always really transparently false, which is um, I wanted to pursue my lifelong dream of producing or <laughs> I wanted to spend more time with my family. Those are your two, those you got right. column A, column B. Um, Disney offered me a producing deal. Then I would have had the story about how I wanted to pursue my lifelong dream of producing, which was the opposite of my lifelong dream. Um, <laughs> I loved being an executive. I loved my job. And so uh -huh. I didn't feel excited about being a producer. And if I was going to be a producer, I was not going to be a producer for the people who had just fired me. I was way too proud to either go with the cover story and I was too proud to have a producing deal that would result in me pitching things to people who had either fired me or worked for me. Right. Um, and so my lawyer said, well, what do you want to, what, what, what do you want to say? You can say anything you want. They will back you up. And I was like, I want to say the truth. I want to say that I was fired. 
I, that's the truth. And if I lie about it, it makes it seem like I'm ashamed of it or I deserved it and I don't want anybody to know. I just want to say the truth. And that's what I did. Uh-huh. You know, my whatever statement that I had released the next day or whatever was that I had, you know, it was my job at Disney was a privilege, not a right. And I had loved it and enjoyed it. And it was really sad that it was over. And that was it. Do you, do you feel that that was the right decision to actually claim that story and, and tell tell the truth? Absolutely. Now? I mean, I have this theory that applies to a lot of areas of my life. My theory is that powerful men don't wear toupees because a toupee indicates that you are not proud of who you are and how you look, that you have something to hide, something you're trying to pull over on people, Uh um, and people know that it's not real and thus have something on you, which is I know something about you that you don't want me to know. Right. And that you think I don't know because of that toupee, but I actually do know it. Right, right, right. (laughs) Because it's a toupee. Yes. And it's a bummer that you've lost your hair, but don't go with the lie. Go with the truth. Um, And own the truth. Yeah. And um, it's humbling. It's really humbling. And you do. You feel a lot of self-doubt. Although I will say that I had been given very good advice when I got there, which was that Jerry Bruckheimer had said to me, there's two types of people in your job. People who think they'll have it forever and the ones who know they won't. Um, So uh, I never— I never thought I would have the job forever. I always knew, like, sooner or later, you'll go out boots first. It's just right. the way it is in those jobs. But I just didn't uh, I didn't expect it when it happened at you all. You didn't see it coming. Yeah. No, did not see it coming. Yeah. Did you cry? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I was really sad. I really loved that job, and I loved the people I worked with. Um, I loved that job. Yeah. I was not ready. I wasn't done. I wasn't over it. I was— you know, enjoying it still. But I came to this conclusion of, like, I could just be bitter and angry and feel that I was horribly wronged. Or I could ask myself, how did this happen? And what can I get from it? Um, I ended up actually doing something I haven't done since I was out of college. I took six months off to be with my family. We had two older kids and a new baby, and I wanted to think about what would be next. I knew I could be a producer, but I wasn't sure I wanted to be one. Uh-huh. So instead of taking a deal at Disney, mm-hmm. where they would have given me movies and whatnot, I was like, yeah, bye. <laughs> Goodbye <laughs> to you. Um, I also sold my stock in a fit of anger, which was a mistake. Oh, shoot. Dumb. Yeah, dumb. Really dumb. But I was just mad, and I didn't want to root for people who had fired me. So, yeah. um, but but I also, from a, like I say, from a public standpoint, I don't speak ill of them. And I, I learned so much there. And the boss who fired me, I learned so much from him. I was given so much um, confidence in going with my gut and— so much freedom to try different things, and uh, I I can't 
I honestly can't hold a grudge. Like, it was a heartbreaker at the time, but I can't hold a grudge. Um, I just can't do it. Yeah. And, and so you spent six months actually doing the thing that people say they're going to do, which is, like, to actually spend time with your with your family. Yep. You decide to start your own company. Yeah. Um, and the name of your company is Color Force. Um, Color Force is my company. It's a quantum right. physics term that is a, an invisible force that the more things pull apart, the stronger oh. this invisible force becomes to pull them back together. Uh, so the color force is weakest when things are closest together or least pulled apart. The more they pull apart, the stronger the color force becomes to pull them together. It's a very rudimentary, but I like the sound of it. I also thought it sounded kind of like a gay superhero unit. <laughs> and... Um, the idea of this invisible force that holds things together because fundamentally that's what producers do. Right. Hold things together. Yeah. Things that want to fall apart all the time. Which is every worthwhile project ever. Yes. Every project w wants to fall apart and every project wants to be bad. It, they have two instincts that you're always fighting against. Make it better, hold it together. That's the job. After the break what it's like to become the thing you didn't want to become, and how it led Nina to some of the biggest hits of her career, including the blockbuster Crazy Rich Asians. That's after these words from our sponsors. Welcome back to Without Fail. We're picking back up our conversation with Nina Jacobson and what she did after she was fired as an executive from Disney. Nina started her own production company, Color Force, in 2007, and she came out of the gate with a bang. She optioned the best-selling young adult book, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and turned that into a successful movie franchise. She optioned the Hunger Games series, turned those into hit franchises. And her most recent blockbuster was the hit movie Crazy Rich Asians. That came about when she read the book, couldn't put it down. She reached out to the writer, Kevin Kwan, and convinced him to do a different type of deal, to develop it outside of the traditional studio system, independently with her company. That meant less money up front for both of them, but more if it actually became a hit. It was a bet on their own success. They started filming in the spring of 2017, and this August, it was released. They made the movie for $30 million. It has gone on to earn $230 million worldwide. When did you realize that that was going to be a hit? Um, this was one where I always felt really confident about this movie. I just always felt like, this is a fun movie. It's a fun movie. You just People knew. Are, I just really knew. I mean, I... Um, what I didn't know is how emotional it would be of an experience, that the success of it would mean so much to people in the way that it did. I always thought it was going to be a hit, um, but I didn't know how deeply felt it would be for people who felt that they had not gotten to see themselves or an aspirational version of themselves on screen and I never thought it was going to be just the Asian-American people who would like it. I always thought, mm -hmm. I love the book. Why wouldn't anybody else like that book? If we get it right, it should work. Um, mm -hmm. Especially if the emotions are universal. And anybody right. can relate to being bringing the wrong person home or being brought home as the wrong person. Right. So so you've you've had a pretty successful run doing this thing that you said that you never wanted to go back to doing, which was producing. Um, if you could go back, now having had this experience that you've had over the last several years, if you could go back and undo the firing 
and just like actually keep the job at Disney, would you? No way. No way. There's a freedom in having both TV and film available if you love stories that I'm now completely couldn't live without. Uh-huh. And then there's the being your own boss part of it. And there's the sense of, I don't know, the deepness of the bond that I feel to the work and the people that I work with. So no, I don't, I would go back if I had to. I would really try to do it maybe the day before she went into labor or maybe the day <laughs> after, maybe a couple of months after. So obviously I wish the timing had been different. Right. Because um, that was really a drag. You said the, the being your own boss and the deepness of the bond. Say more about that. There's a a connection that you feel when you're on a set of a movie with a filmmaker or with a team of people. And, um, you know, something like Crazy Rich Asians, you look at all of these people and they just are pouring their heart and soul into their work. And there are the most talented people in all manner of jobs. And until you're really on the set of a movie, you don't see just how many really gifted people do amazing work. And the feeling, the bond that you feel to that team and the sense of being one of them and is something that I really love. I love being one of the crew. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't know that. When I didn't want to be a producer, um, I didn't know what that felt like. Right. One one last question, self-serving one for me. I feel like I've had, you and I have had, in some ways, maybe reverse trajectories. I was always part of the crew. I was always making the thing. And, And now I find myself more of like, we're essentially trying to start a studio here and we right. we have to we have to make hits. Yep. And I realized that I have no idea how to foster that. I know how to do it myself I, some sometimes, but I have no idea how to how to foster that as a as a as a system. So h- how do you make hits, Nina? <laughs> well, you know, I would say is that never do anything that someone isn't really passionate about. And it might not always be you in that job, I would say, right? There were times when I had to borrow somebody else's passion. If you're going to make 20 movies a year, you, if you trust the people around you, then sometimes you borrow their passion. And at a certain point, like, you'll get caught up in it. But sometimes there's a whole period where that person's passion and your confidence in that person is the driver. Mm-hmm. Because ideally, you would be passionate yourself about every single thing. But when you get to that demand for volume, you realize that actually, because taste is subjective and because of what you have to accomplish, that sometimes you have to borrow somebody else's passion. Right. But. If there's nobody who's passionate about it, there's no way it's going to be a hit. Uh, Right. That was my experience. The things that you do because you think you should, those are always the mistakes. Somebody should just love the shit out of it. (laughs) So that's that's one rule. Are there others? Um... 
the other thing is that like failures, you do fail. Like there's no chance that you won't fail. None, none. So there has to be some room for like allowing yourself to fail. Next time on Without Fail, my guest is NBA world champion Andre Iguodala of the Golden State Warriors. We talk about what it's like to play in a team when everyone loves you and what it's like to play on a team when people don't love you so much. Like earlier in Andre's career, when he played for the Philadelphia 76ers. My high school teammate came out to Philly for the first time. And uh, we were walking down the street, and this dude walked past, saw me, and just, F you mother effer, like you sorry mother effer. He was like, yo! Like, what? He was like, yo, man, what's really good with these people? That's next episode of Without Fail. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Sarah Platt. It was edited by me, Nazneen Rafsanjani, and Devin Taylor. Jarrett Floyd and Cedric Wilson mixed the episode. Music by Bobby Lord. Special thanks to Matthew Bowl. If you think Without Fail should be a hit, leave us a review. It helps other people discover the show. And also, tell your friends about it. Don't just keep it to yourself. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>